Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 946. Today we have a question from Richard. He actually sent this in a couple of years ago, and I've held it aside because he uses a word that a couple of years ago would have sent everybody, everybody, into apoplexy, so the rest of the question would have gotten completely lost. So now things have cooled down enough that we may be able to actually have a real question about it. I think I still have that word muted on, on all my social media. All right, so Richard asks... Question... Trump has tossed out the idea of a space force to fight wars for us in space. Has this caused you to rethink anything in how you write future sequels to your antithesis books, rewrites, or new properties? Obviously, that man has no clue about science, but you've written, if I recall, the possibility of launching a perfectly timed boulder from the moon to wreak havoc upon the Earth. Well, yeah, though that that idea is not mine originally. That comes from uh, Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and before that he even mentioned it in um, The Man Who Sold the Moon. And in in fact, in the film Destination Moon, which was an adaptation of Rocketship Galileo, though kind of a boring one, um, the idea of a space force is inevitable. We're all, we already are in the middle of space-based warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, in my future history, I had projected that it was going to be the um it was going to be the air force of the marines that would wind up moving into space mm-hmm. and because those books are off the market for uh so that I can finish the series because I discovered that the whole series is really one book and I was having trouble with continuity as I discovered things I needed to go back and fix in order to make stuff work mm-hmm. I have gone ahead and changed the name to the USASF the United States Air Space Force, <laughs> um, because it's inevitable that that the Space Force is going to wind up being um, the, the the Navy is basically going to wind up running everything ground side, and the um, Space Force is going to wind up running everything above the ground. Mm. And I've got a hundred years to go, so institutional name changes. I mean, the Air Force has only been around since World War II, so institutional name changes are a thing that happens. Um, CIA has already had at least two names because the the Air Force because they keep dirtying their name and so <laughs> uh, the Air Force used to be part of the um, part of the army part of the army it was the U.S. Army uh, Air Corps and then it was the U.S. Army Air Force and now it's the U.S. Air Force mm-hmm. stuff like that gets reorganized all the time so yeah I have um, since it was introduced as the Space Force I figured that something of that branding will continue forward and so the uh, u.s airspace force is what i settled on for my world mm-hmm. um the idea of a space force does not come from trump it's been kicking around in national security circles since at least the mid-1990s it's been absolutely clear that the more dependent we are on satellites for intelligence and communications on the battlefield, the more vital it is to militarize space in contravention of international law because someone else will do it first. And hey, look, the Chinese did it a little before we admitted to doing it, at least. And doesn't that even predate um, the 90s to say 
the Reagan administration That's right. well, and yeah, there, Star Wars. There was the Star Wars thing in the Reagan era, and there was, but it no, you're right because it was there was a it was in um, a foreign policy journal. Like, okay, you're going to find out the depth of my geekitude here. So I was reading foreign policy journals in junior high. It was a foreign policy journal article that I read in junior high, and I can't remember what journal it was in or who it was that um, that wrote it. Um, or even what it was called, but I was, um, I had discovered Tom Clancy and I decided I wanted to write techno thrillers. So I was like going to the college library nearby and just getting into all the deep geek stuff that was declassified. And there were articles that were declassified at the time that were running in foreign policy circles and military policy circles about, um, the possibility of kinetic satellite warfare Mm-hmm. that would both cripple communications and close off access to space because of the orbiting space junk. And so there's a few scenarios that have been in the public consciousness, or at least the public arena, since the mid-80s about how to basically destroy the world with a single missile launched at a satellite that's in the correct orbit that would then, in a chain reaction, destroy all the rest of the satellites. Right. So the idea of a branch of the U.S. military that was specifically tasked with managing space warfare was utterly inevitable. For a long time, it looked like NASA was going to be that, but in the mid-90s, NASA really, really worked hard to to shunt itself of its militaristic image from the Cold War and the Apollo moon landings. Mm-hmm and rejigger itself as a sort of science and exploration organization. And so at that point, the idea of having NASA also be in charge of the space military sort of became politically incorrect within the Beltway circles. So um, it was inevitable that it happened, and um, no matter who was in the White House at that time, it would have come up. That's one of those things that the president takes credit for, but doesn't have anything to do with. Mm -hmm. Um, He rubber stamps what the bureaucracy has produced. And the reason that it came into public consciousness at that time was that China was already conducting satellite warfare against our satellites. It's like with Sputnik. Um, The Russians weren't first to space because we couldn't have got there first. They were first to space because orbiting something over another country's airspace would have been a violation of international law and an act of war under the conventions of the time. So if we did it first, we were worried about provoking a missile launch. Mm -hmm. But if the Russians did it first, then we could do it and say, hey, you did it and we didn't launch on you, so shut up. Which is exactly what we did. Their uh, first satellite stayed up 90 days. Ours is still up there and working because it was on the ground waiting to go until they did the flyover. Mm. And it was also a great PR victory for the national security complex because they could get all of the the Russians are coming paranoia, which upped their bu- budget appropriations mm-hmm. during that uh, during that three year cycle. But uh, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. We've been waiting to militarize space because it is prohibited specifically in the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, I think. But we had to wait for someone else to do it, obviously, before we could be honest about how we were militarizing space. So we waited for the Chinese to start launching orbital weapons platforms and um, doing sorties where they started hitting our satellites with shit. Mm -hmm. 
so that we could then say, ah, we need a space military, and we wouldn't be the bad guys. Now, I'm fairly convinced that we've had space-based military assets for quite a lot longer than that, but there's one thing, it's one thing to have them in play secretly, when where you can call on them when you need them, but it's much more effective to have them in play publicly, where all your enemies know they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, because then you get the deterrent value and not just the retaliatory value. But we had to wait until someone else was doing it and not caring about the treaty before we went and broke it ourselves. So that's why the timing was such that it happened under Trump. It would have happened that year at that time, regardless of who'd been in office. And the president, despite being commander in chief, doesn't usually have a lot of influence about how that sort of stuff uh is designed or put together. Now, that you're answering a very specific part of his question, but I think there's a there's back, broader question here. I think there's a broader question here. Okay. Um, in how, if you're writing something that's in progress, mm, how future you, histories, right? How how do you adjust your future history to take into account new things that you didn't expect? in current events or do you ignore them and how do you decide um i think that what you have to do and there's different schools of thought there's people that rejigger all along the way there's people that rejigger at reprints um and hope that nobody notices um i tend to think that the smart way to do it is to pick a cutoff date after x year my history diverges from real history regardless of what else happens Mm-hmm. In my future history, that date is 2022. Always has been. And so there are, in like some of the Lantham books and some of the really early stuff, like down from 10, there are things that are going to eventually present minor continuity problems because the those were set in the future when I wrote them and they're now in the past. Um so yeah, really down from 10 doesn't mention anything that's going on other than the storm though. Right, that's true. Um uh, does mention a historic drought which I was expecting to come in 2016 and it did. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting it to break in 2016 and it did briefly. Mm-hmm. So stuff you can do when you read the farmer's almanac instead of reading the news for your weather. But um, because there's macroclimactic cycles that go on. But yeah, there, there's little things like uh, the the whole thing about the Neanderthals in the Lantham books mm-hmm. actually turned out to be kind of wrong. Um, mm. Because we uh, shortly after I started publishing that aspect of those books, it came out that, well, actually, there's been a lot of crossbreeding with Neanderthals. So I got all the anthropology right, but the idea that the Neanderthals are an extinct species is no longer viable. You know, they're mm-hmm. still with us. They're just hybridized. So there's some stuff like that that's kind of a little out of date, but I'm just going to have to roll with it. Mm-hmm. And so I've now got a soft departure at 2012 and a hard departure at 2022 mm-hmm. um, because I'm fairly confident that the scenario that I'm spinning, while it's going to have a lot of similarities to the real world, is going to have some pretty healthy divergences. Like, I don't actually expect the Persian Empire as a Zoroastrian religious state to reassert itself this century. I do expect Iran to become a major geopolitical power whose principal rival is Turkey, and whose principal rivals are Turkey and Russia. I expect that to happen by mid-century. 
but I don't expect them to call themselves Persian and to sort of shuffle Islam off to the side as the state religion. Um, I did that specifically because, A, I don't want to deal with the geopolitics of Islam, and B, because I'm really fascinated with Zoroastrianism and the way it plays into um, questions of governance philosophy in ways that Islam just doesn't and can't because it doesn't have an intellectual tradition in that area. Mm -hmm. And I figure if I wanted the Iranians to be a major geopolitical force that beats the Turks, which they do in my timeline, mm -hmm. they would need to have a more robust governmental philosophical tradition than you can get from the Arabian Islamic uh, governmental tradition because the military and governmental tradition in the Arabian Islamic world is um, predicated upon the sorts of political thinking that works well in small tribal bands, not in large-scale empires. So that was really why I did that. And I don't expect that that's going to actually happen in the real world. In the real world, I expect that um, – Iran may reconquer Afghanistan and may become a major political force, but that eventually, probably, the Turks are going to win. But in my world, because, frankly, I find um, the uh, way that the Persians deal with empire much more interesting than the way that the Ottomans deal with empire, I wanted that as the major geopolitical rival to the U.S. So, so pick a date that mm -hmm. things won't change after. Right. And then that's just, in the past or in yeah, the near future. Pick your date of divergence and stick to it. And that way you don't wind up always having to constantly revise. Mm -hmm. um, or set it so far in the future that it doesn't matter. Uh, the two great science fictional models for this are Robert Heinlein, who did the date of divergence thing, mm -hmm. and Frank Herbert, who put everything so far in the future that the minor geopolitical um, things that seem so big to us just don't matter and they get averaged out in the wash. Mm -hmm. um, and he picked his major turning points of history as being driven by much bigger macro-technological cycles. So those are a couple of ways to do it. Good luck. Thank you very much for the question. And we'll see you tomorrow. tackles blended story structures in a way unlike all other writing guides. Edward J. Knight Robert A. Heinlein One of the most influential writers of the 20th century, his impact permeates the 21st. He wove a special kind of spell that held generations in thrall, but how? What was the secret? I had to know. And it turns out a decade's worth of research and a lifelong obsession can uncover pretty much anything, even the secrets of the Heinlein Juvenile. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer. Join me now at HeinleinSecrets.com for the first ever guide to the pioneer of YA science fiction. Support the publication of the book that two-time Prometheus Award winner Travis J. Corcoran calls the roadmap to how Robert A. Heinlein did his magic that should be read by anyone with an interest in Heinlein, the craft of writing, or America itself. With special exclusive bonus chapters, this book will show you how myth and muscle became rocket ships and ray guns, 
and made the stars our destination. And how you, too, can learn to write books that last and last and last. Visit www.heinleinsecrets.com That's H-E-I-N-L-E-I-N secrets.com before it's too late. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners.